Welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast, where we bring Sunday home. Join us as we dive deeper into First Baptist's weekly sermons, discuss practical applications, and answer your questions. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast. I'm Jordan Upton, and with me as always is Pastor Jeff Reynolds. Jeff, how are you doing today? Doing great. Coming off of a wonderful holiday weekend. We are recording on Tuesday, so it is this week's Monday because of Memorial Day. Um, and I had a good time with my family and doing some of the things in the bright sunshine that have resulted in a little bit of pain on the back of my neck from a little bit of a sunburn, but yep. it's a welcome feeling uh, as the sun is shining. How about you guys? How was your weekend? The same. We got a little inflatable pool, so Isaac got a little inflatable pool time. Oh, so. that's awesome. That's yeah. <laughs> that's summer right there. Yeah. It's fun because he has this idea in his head whenever he's in a pool that he needs to get the water out of the pool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he has his little cup and he's just kind of, you know, <laughs> it's like he's saving the boat or something like that. I love it. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah, yeah. So the scripture from this weekend was 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have already fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, so there are a couple different points from that passage we'll get to. So let's talk about resurrection first. So Jeff, on Sunday, you you said, everything in the Christian faith and in my life hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I do want to ask, though, weren't there others who were raised from the dead? For example, Lazarus was dead, and he was dead longer than Jesus, but he came back from the dead. So what makes the resurrection of Jesus so special? Well, that's a great question because you do have other resurrection accounts in the Gospels. And so you think about Jairus' daughter, you think about Lazarus. What's the difference between Jesus and those whom Jesus raised from the dead? Well, one, Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in flesh. And so um, there's a difference in his ontology. There's a difference in his being. He is not the same as those others who were raised from the dead. 
as the Son of God, he was functioning representatively for us. And so if you look at Romans chapter 5, we talk about how Adam sinned representatively on behalf of all of us. So our first grandparent sinned on our behalf, and then death came through Adam's sin. Jesus was obedient to God. And his obedience to God functions representatively to all who trust and follow him. And so as death came through Adam, so also life has come through Christ. And so there's another difference because Jesus functions as our representative to uh, give us his imputed righteousness, that his obedience to the Father is credited to us when we repent of our sin and place our faith in him. That's the basis of our justification. So... God the Son in the flesh, functioning representatively for us in his obedience, then in his death, and again in his resurrection. He is the firstborn from among the dead. So what do you see here? With those whom Jesus raised from the dead during the course of his earthly ministry, what's happening is God is acting in the lives of regular human beings to verify his claims to deity, to verify his claims to being the Messiah, to verify the words that are coming forth from his mouth. Um, and so it is illustrative of his power over death. He would say to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus is illustrating that this is who he is. When Jesus is raised from the dead, you don't have another human being functioning to speak that resurrection into his life. So it wasn't the women who came to the tomb. It wasn't the angels who came to the tomb who raised Jesus from the dead. It was God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so there's another difference where God the Father is raising Christ and he is giving this final word that this is the Son. Uh, this is the one that we have been waiting for, prophesied from Genesis chapter 3, Psalm chapter two and all the more than 300 messianic prophecies of the old testament are being fulfilled and so as jesus was raised to life by god the father god the father was setting upon him really this 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 crowning victory to illustrate his identity and on some level he was qualitatively different after the resurrection, right? Yes, and that's, a, that's so important because what happened to those whom Jesus raised from the dead? They all died. They all died again. And it's one of the things we don't think about. Lazarus went through death twice. Jairus' daughter went through death twice. The young man Jesus raised from the dead went through death twice. Jesus rose never to die again. So he ascended into heaven bodily, um, and he has not experienced death again, whereas those whom he raised previously died again. Now, their spirit went to be with him, uh, presumably because of their faith in Jesus, uh, but that didn't happen to Jesus. He bodily ascended into glory. Let's drill into that a little bit. So when he's resurrected, he still has scars, but he does have other qualities that are not like the other people that are raised from the dead in the Bible. So he he can go through walls. It seems like he looks different, and you know does not have the same features that people recognize. So uh, <laughs> Jesus says the firstborn from among the dead is is the pattern is the the type of what it is to have a resurrection body. And the Bible tells us later in First Corinthians chapter fifteen that 
he is the firstborn from among the dead, and then we will follow in his pattern. And so when he returns, we will be raised, and bodies will be called forth from the grave and from the sea and wherever they are. Bodies will be called forth, and they will be transformed. The Bible says in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. And even if we are still alive when Christ returns, we will be changed in an instant. And suddenly our mortal bodies will be clothed with immortality. Our perishable bodies will become imperishable. And so what will that mean? Well, it will mean that our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus's resurrection body. Jesus maintains the scars uh, in his hands and in his side and in his feet. Uh, we know that because of his interaction with Thomas, where Thomas said, unless I can see him and, and place my hand in the scars, I'll never believe. Well, Jesus shows himself to Thomas. Thomas falls to his knees. My Lord and my God makes this amazing uh, declaration of faith in the risen, in the risen Jesus. Um, so we know that Jesus maintains his scars, but those scars are the trophy uh, of what he did for us. So um, Casting Crowns recently put out a song called Scars in Heaven, and, and the thrust of the song is absolutely theologically true. Uh, the only scars in heaven are on the hands that hold you now, speaking you know, to one who's gone on before us. Um, so Jesus, remember, was, was marred beyond human likeness. So it wasn't just that he had holes in his hands and his feet and was pierced in the side. The Bible says in Isaiah's servant songs, he was marred beyond human recognition. So the fact that, that he was beaten... And, and literally had the skin stripped off of him. That's what a cat of nine tails would do when they, when they scourged him. Um, it wasn't just that they were tenderizing the meat. There were little, little balls on the ends of those, those uh, tassels on the whips, but there were also little bits of bone. And, uh, and, and they knew what they were doing. They were ripping the flesh off of him. I don't, and I don't know another way to say it than to say that he was essentially a bloody mess. I mean, he was just... Um, he was marred beyond human likeness. And so the fact that Mary didn't recognize him, I think, is attributable to the fact that the last time she saw him, this is what he looked like. And, and the only thing I know to, to liken that to is sometimes when you go through the passing of a loved one and you see them as they ended their life, that can be a very traumatic experience. And sometimes we wish we hadn't seen that. You know, some people won't even go to a visitation with an open casket because they don't want to see them and remember them in that way. Yeah. So you think about the last way that Mary saw Jesus. Well, no wonder she didn't recognize him. Um, so it's just very interesting. Uh, there's some mystery to it. We have some mystery to what our resurrection bodies will be like, but um, we do know that they will be perfect. And uh, they will be impervious to sin or temptation or disease or death. And uh, I don't know that we can quite understand that because every day when I get up and look in the mirror, uh, I got a little bit more <laughs> death showing up on my face as I, you know, you know, I'm one day closer to, to the moment when it all ends for me. And uh, I don't know when that is, but uh, that will not be the case in the eternal state. So that'll take us to the end of this passage for this week. So at the end of this passage, Paul gets really circular. So in verse 28, he says, when all things are subjected to him, 
that is the son, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, so what what is Paul saying, and what does it mean that God will be all in all? That's a great question. And so one of the things that we confess as Christians is we believe in the Trinity, the triune nature of Almighty God, that God is three persons but one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal in their Godness. And what that means is that the Father is not more God than the Son, who is not more God than the Spirit, who is not more God or less God than the Father and the Son. And so they are they are three equally God, co-equally God, co-eternally God. Um, but one of the truths that's revealed in Scripture about the Godhead is that there is a hierarchy of authority. And so the Son comes to do the will of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son to do the will of the Father and the Son. And so there, there is a hierarchy in authority. And so one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, that's, that says, Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And so this this beautiful, I mean, it gives me goosebumps just to hear that, to, to picture Jesus presenting all of creation brought under the lordship of Almighty God to his Father. And, and what's happening? God the Father has given all things to God the Son. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then the end comes when the Son presents all of that to the Father because it is thoroughly finished and complete. And so what you have here is eternally this hierarchy uh, within the Godhead functioning. Again, all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equally God, fully God, no less God than the other, but the Father has the the supreme authority over the Son, and then the Father and the Son have authority over the Spirit. Um, Again, that makes none of them less than, but that's the way it works. And so Paul says, the Son presents the kingdom to the Father, and all things are put in subjection to the Son. The Son then surrenders all of that to the Father. And so when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. So it's this beautiful picture of the relationship between the persons of the Godhead. This, this, this beautiful submission of the Son to the Father there, there's there's no fighting for authority within the Godhead. There's no jealousy within the Godhead. It's this this beautiful, pure relationship. And then it says that God may be all in all. And so, what is he saying? Does that does that mean everything becomes God? No, that does not at all mean everything becomes God. But that God is supreme, preeminent over all things, that there is nothing that is greater than God. Um, And so we will worship Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity, um, and it will be a beautiful thing. Yeah, so in verse 27, Paul is quoting Psalm 8 when he says, God has put all things in subjection under his feet, which is really cool to me because it's like this has been prophesied from long ago, and Paul isn't just saying something new, like he's quoting something that's been around for maybe a thousand years at this point, Right. When, by the time he's writing it. 
uh, and looking a little bit more uh, into context in Psalm 8, uh, what is it talking about? But it's talking about man, but not just man, but like the man, like the Messiah yeah. coming, right? Yeah. So uh, picking up in Psalm 8, verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the works of your finger, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And here it is. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. So in, in thinking about that, I was thinking about how, you know, Jeff, you were talking about the the wrestling for authority. Like, the son does not wrestle for authority with the father, but that's exactly what Satan did. Um, Satan was an angel who was given certain dominion over a certain you know area of authority, and he abused that because he wanted to take God's authority or disrespect God or whatever his intentions were. He did not live up to what he was supposed to do, and yet man, who's you know made of flesh and blood, this one man, the Christ, will accomplish all of these things that God has set before him. And he will take on this task and accomplish it. Even now, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's crazy that all of that is, you know, alluded to here in this psalm from so long ago. That was even there a long time before Paul, and yet he's bringing this forward and presenting it to us, saying, "Hey, the Bible's true." <laughs> yeah. Well, and and then the author of Hebrews, yeah. who some would say is Paul. I don't think it was Paul. Right. Um, but in Hebrews chapter two, you have the straightforward quotation of Psalm eight, and it it absolutely tells us this is Jesus and this is how this all is working out. And so for further reading on this subject, all you got to do is flip over to Hebrews chapter two, and it's so good. All things in scripture work together to help us understand who God is and how God functions and how God has redeemed us. And it's just, it's really beautiful. Amen. So that'll take us into today's listener question. Listeners, if you have a question, just go to the link in the show notes or comment on the post below. Jeff, what should I be thinking about when I take communion? Is there some kind of mental or spiritual preparation I should do beforehand? Yeah, that's a great question and a very important question. And I think that when we look into Scripture, the Bible tells us um, exactly how we ought to approach the Lord's Supper, and, and, and we ought to approach it seriously uh, and not flippantly. So when Paul was writing his his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, uh, which would have been his second letter to the Corinthians, we don't have the first 1 Corinthians, we have the second 1 Corinthians, anyway. <laughs> um, but this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is talking about the fact that, that they were getting drunk at these love feasts, and so people were showing up and showing favoritism and, and, and disdaining some and going ahead. And, and the way that they would do it was they had what was called a love feast. And so it wasn't just the bread and the wine. It was a meal. Uh, and people were showing up and excluding others because they were eating beforehand. And so this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 17. The apostle Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now listen to this. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. So what is Paul writing here? Well, he's saying, number one, don't treat the Lord's Supper flippantly. Uh, And he's saying, (laughs) judge yourself as you approach the table of the Lord. Now, number one, uh, the table of the Lord is not for unbelievers. And so I try to be very clear about that every time we have the Lord's Supper here. Because again, the Bible says very clearly here, uh, when you when you eat and drink uh, of the Lord's Supper without discerning the body and blood of Jesus, without uh, partaking in a, in a worthy manner, and that is only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, um, there can be physical consequences. Paul says there are some of you who are weak and ill because you have disdained uh, the Lord's Supper. You have not respected uh, what that Lord's Supper symbolizes. But as believers, not only should we come to it seriously and reverently, we should come to it examining ourselves and taking time to pray, Lord, um, if there are offensive ways in me, show me those ways and 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 call them to my remembrance that I might repent of those, that I might seek your um, seek seek your forgiveness. I say seek your forgiveness, not in the sense of, oh, your death on the cross hasn't yet covered over these sins. No, that's not it at all. But it's just functioning to maintain the relationship, you know, to to maintain the 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 goodness of our relationship together. It's my being honest with God, uh, not my seeking His forgiveness because His death on the cross was not sufficient, but it is my simply naming my sin, confessing my sin, turning away from my sin, and asking Him to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, which is the the inclination to do evil. So, Lord, cleanse me. Uh, I want to be very clear here because there are some denominations who believe that when you take communion, you are receiving grace, and that grace forgives your sin, and that is not the case at all. But there is a sense in which we confess in the same way that, you know, I know Isaac's a wonderful kid, but at some point he's going to do something wrong. And you'll know about it before he ever talks to you about it. And one of the greatest things is when he comes and says, Dad, I did something wrong. 
and you allow him to confess that, even though you know he did it already, you love him, now you're likely going to discipline him as a good father does a son, whatever that means for you. Um, But when he comes to you confessing that sin, seeking your forgiveness, what does that do to your relationship? It only strengthens the bond of your relationship. And that's the same way that we come to God, seeking his forgiveness for the things that we have done against him. There are times when we should let the elements pass. And one of the times when we should let the elements pass uh, and not participate in the Lord's Supper is when we have something against another human being, another believer, that we should be reconciled with them. And so there are times when, you know, my heart's just not in the right place and I'm harboring anger or resentment or whatever, and I need to go and be reconciled with my brother or sister in Christ before I come to the table so that I can come to the table with a clear conscience. And so that's, a, that's another principle to think about when we come to the Lord's Supper. So it's kind of like when Jesus is talking about going to the temple but leaving your animal to reconcile with your brother before you make your sacrifice. Very much so. And again, it's not that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice in any sense. The Roman Catholic Church would teach that it is a sacrifice. It is not a sacrifice. It is a symbol reminding us of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice on the cross 2,000 years ago. Um But the same sort of idea that that I want my heart to be right and— in loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving my neighbor as myself, if I have something against my brother, I should I should seek to be reconciled, and uh, and those are important things. There have definitely been times in my life where I have chosen to let the elements pass, gone and uh, sought to be reconciled to my brother. I'll tell you that that enriches the experience because. It reminds us how serious it is when we come to the Lord's table. That's really helpful. I've actually thought about that before and wondered if that is appropriate to do, so I'm thankful that you clarified that. Yes, sir. Do you mind praying us out for today? Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for your grace extended to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose death alone is sufficient to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We're so thankful, Lord, that Jesus died once for all, and so that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are not repeating the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We are not covering over sin that has happened between the last time we had the Lord's Supper and the most recent time. No, we are simply remembering that the body of Christ and the blood of Christ was given so that we might be cleansed once for all from all of our sin. And Lord, we're so thankful for that. Let us live as those who have been made clean by the blood of the Lamb, and let us continue to seek to live lives that honor you. Uh, And Lord, when when we stray, that we would return to you and that we would surrender again to your Lordship in our lives, all for your glory and the world's good. We pray these things trusting you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to our channel. To submit a question about Sunday's sermon, the Bible, or walking with Jesus, click the link in the episode description. Our hosts today are Pastor Jeff Reynolds and myself, Jordan Upton. Our engineer is Elliot Beckley, and our editor is Chad Walden.